Our runners are often asking us how they can optimize their recovery. And aside from getting more sleep, one of our number one tips is compression socks. Compression socks can help increase blood flow from your legs to your heart and raise your blood oxygen levels. They also minimize leg pain and cramping and reduce swelling. So they're great for after that long run or hard workout. Our favorites are Lily Trotter's compression socks. They are the strongest compression that you can get without a doctor's prescription. And they are beautiful and fun to wear with your running gear. We love their Battle Axe collection, which recognizes powerful, unstoppable women warriors. But the socks can be worn by men or by women. So we're happy to have them as a sponsor and they are offering our podcast listeners 20% off with the code RFF20 on the website, Lily Trotters. That's L-I-L-Y-T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S dot com. We just wanted to take a quick break to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, UFOs. If you're a longtime listener, you know that UFO shoes are an integral part of our recovery and we've been wearing their new boots all winter long. UFOs are the original recovery footwear brand, helping to reduce load and stress so your body can rebuild throughout the day. Often the aches and pains we're feeling in our feet, ankles, knees, and even our hips can be due to not wearing supportive shoes. We wear our supportive running shoes when we're running, but what do we wear when we're not running? UFOs reduce shock impact on the body by 37%, making it easier for your body to recover faster. Stay tuned to our podcast and social media channels this month for a chance to win a pair of UFOs. And check them out now on their website at UFOs, O-O-F-O-S dot com. One of the pieces of running gear that we've both used for 15 years is our SPY belt. It's one of our favorite pieces of running gear. SPY belt stands for small personal items. And we both started using it many years ago to carry our nutrition during races. It's great, no bounce, no chafing, and a great way to carry nutrition. But since then, I'll be honest, I use mine as my purse. I use it for my phone, my keys, wallet, and strap it on and don't have to worry about carrying a purse. So it's one of our favorite running items and we are so excited to have Spy Belt as one of our sponsors and they are offering our listeners 15% off through May 15th. You can order online at spybelt.com and enter the code RUNFARTHERFASTER15, all one word, lowercase letters. Give it a try. We think that you'll love the Spy Belt for whatever you have to carry when you need your hands free. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. So um, we're here on a Wednesday evening right before our coaching call with all of our speed and strength runners to wrap up that program. So I'm really glad that you and I have a chance to connect before that because we're finally feeling like that busyness in our lives that we haven't had in so long. And I'm not loving it, but I appreciate the reason that we're in this is because people are getting vaccinated and things are opening up. And so I'm happy to be busy for that reason. So in other words, you and I have not connected in person that much this week. So it's always a joy to talk to you, particularly tonight. But before we get to more happy things, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this tragedy that just happened over the weekend in China. 
And uh, I don't know about you, but I had, I did a total double take when I read that headline on Sunday morning, I actually it was Monday morning, reporting that 21 runners died at the Yellow River Stone Forest 100K, which is in the northwestern part of China. I guess it was um, a pretty known event because there's this huge endurance running boom in China. And apparently there's hundreds of trail races there. So I'm sure all of the runners there did not think for a second that their lives were in danger when they decided to run this course. Um, so we're learning a little bit more bit by bit about what happened. And I'm sure there's lots of blame to go around, but seriously, can you imagine those families and what the runners must have been going through to be in that situation? And the loss of anyone is devastating, but in the running community where everyone is kind of out there doing the same thing, thinking that we're doing something healthy to learn that 21 people died. It's just unfathomable. Yeah. It's, um, it was really like, like you said, I kind of did a double take of like 21, like that's a lot of, um, runners and it sounds like a lot were rescued. So there were a lot that were rescued, um, but rescuers just couldn't get to everyone. And it does sound like, um, you know, at least from what we're hearing and what we're seeing kind of the chatter that there was just not a lot of um, preparation or um, anticipation of this type of um, possibility and um, that people weren't, you know, here in the States when there are uh, races like that, that are kind of in extreme terrain, um, that most of that, uh, that the the, uh, race directors hand out kind of ready bags that are um, emergency bags that include a Mylar blanket and different supplies in case you get lost, in case you get stranded, in case something like this happens. And it sounds like they didn't have that. So I'm sure that was a contributing factor. Um, But yeah, obviously nobody wants to hear um, that that this is happening happening and it's you know it's interesting because we're just getting back to racing and um we're not even really used to hearing about races never mind big races and um something like this happening is is really um just wasn't wasn't clearly wasn't on our radar screen even even races happening but then obviously like you said 21 people it's um just underscores the importance of as runners checking out the protocols for a race making sure it's safe, really taking the responsibility on yourself to ask questions, to find out about the preparations. And we've talked about this through COVID where, you know, making sure a race feels safe, but um, even beyond that, uh, making sure road closures are, are in place if, you know, and if they're not that you're aware of that and making sure that all the safety um, procedures are being followed. So I think it underscores the importance for runners to do their research on races and then race directors to really think through every contingency. You just really don't know um, what can happen and, and obviously unforeseen circumstances can happen, but, um, but, but really um, taking every, every precaution. And both of us as attorneys are probably looking at this thinking reasonable, reasonable person standard and liability on those race directors. For sure. We talked about this a little bit I believe with Dave McGilvery a while ago, but there's no like governing body for races. So maybe the one good thing that could come out of this, not that anything good comes out of 21 runners dying at a race, but perhaps this will prompt something to happen where there is some sort of governing body because the RRCA does uh, provide standards, but there really isn't anything else. So I think if anything, perhaps there will be something for these race directors to at least be able to get behind and for us as runners uh, have the reassurance of knowing that there are standards. Uh, But yeah, I think this does underline to your point that 
you know, we all do this as a hobby. This could have happened anywhere. And at the end of the day, we have to rely on our own judgment, not at all blaming these runners. This, the weather turned dark and stormy and the winds and everything else were unpredictable. But nonetheless, it does appear there were some warnings to the race director. So lots of blame to go around. And at the end of the day, what's super sad, of course, is the loss of 21 lives. So our thoughts are with that running community. It's, it was really something. So moving on to more positive subject matter, Lisa, races are returning in full force. And we're seeing it because all of our runners are coming back. And we're so excited because... You know, I, I'm going to toot our horn for a moment. Like we have really spent the past 15 months, uh, 14 months, coaching people a lot through not racing. So to all of a sudden we have races on the calendar. It's just super exciting. And it just gives us the reassurance and knowing that we can provide people with s- structured goals again and not sort of putting them in a position where we want to keep people healthy, we want to keep them running, but not so much that they peak too early because we're not sure when the races are going to return. So it's super exciting to see races on the calendar. And now all of a sudden we're finding ourselves training all of our runners once again for races. And it's just as coaches, so, so thrilling. So speaking of which, we thought tonight we would talk a little bit about some tips because races are returning in full force. And because many of those races are happening between September and December, we know now that we're in May that a lot of folks are thinking about starting training or at least when to start training. And one of the biggest goals, if not the biggest goal that every runner should have at this point is how to train without getting injured. While we all want to PR and we all want to crush our race goals, really the first goal before anything else is training and getting to the start line injury-free. Because obviously, if you can't get to the start line injury-free, you certainly can't PR. So we wanted to provide some tips to everyone listening out there. And even if you do not have a goal race yet, many of these tips are very relevant. So um, we hope that all of our listeners find this helpful. So Lisa, why don't you start out with tip number one? Our first tip is um, less is more and uh, don't start out, um, start your training for your marathon or half marathon, whatever that may be too early. So most of the marathons that we're looking at right now are October, November, even some into December. And um, depending on where you are right now, that it may be a little early to start the ramp up. Um, A four month training block for those that have a decent base or have maybe done this before is plenty. Um, If you're already at a, if you're looking at a marathon and you're ready at a half marathon training base, three months is is plenty. You don't wanna drag it out um, too fast or too long. And uh, you know the base building is is so important. And and for a lot of us who've maybe, you know, not done so, so much structured training over the pandemic, especially with races on, not on the horizon and races on hold, uh, we have to get some of that base back. And it's kind of boring and really basic, but it's necessary. And a lot of the runners that we're writing plans for right now, we're explaining to them, your first four to six weeks is really base building. It's just easy, conversational, aerobic, um, as, as Paul likes to call it, all day pace, ADP. So, you know, that all day pace that you could run at all day that, um, you can sustain and build that aerobic engine. Because if you start, 
to add too much intensity or too much distance too quickly, that's when injuries are going to pop up. And like you said, if you're injured, you're not going to get to the start line. And that leads to our second tip regarding speed. And you want to touch on that, Julie? Yeah. So with respect to speed, we like to look at speed as sort of the toppings on uh, the ice cream. So speed should not be the basis of any ramp up as we prepare for a race. Let's say you are training for a marathon and you're thinking about sort of structuring your marathon training program or half marathon training program. Speed work should just be a tiny portion of the overall mileage of the week. And what we mean by that is it's not the best idea to sprinkle in speed into every workout. And here's why. When we sprinkle in too much speed or we try it and do speed work even just a little bit for every workout, then we're sort of negating the benefits of what you just referred to, Lisa, as the base building. So when thinking about speed, think about a designated day to do speed work. And initially when starting to do speed work, it does not have to be a long workout. In fact, you can get a lot of bang for your buck with just a little bit of speed work because specificity is key. And what we mean by that is it's not the best idea to go out and do, for example, when you've just started a training program, mile repeats, because you want to see how you feel doing your goal MP, MP pace, because that's the pace you want to run in four months. You're Maybe you're not there yet. That's okay. So instead of doing mile repeats, just sprinkle it in, do quarter mile, do some 200s. But whatever you do, make sure that the speed work is intentional and specific. And remember that less is more. Um, if you're following a training plan that's been written for you by a coach, even better. If you don't have a coach, it's really important to do some research. Because just going out there and willy-nilly doing random speed workouts is not going to be as productive as being intentional. Yeah, what you said about specificity is really important. You need to think about what are you training for and what are your weaknesses. So if you're training for a marathon, like you said, doing a lot of VO2 max workouts, um, not really going to help your, your marathon training, maybe sprinkling in some shorter intervals to work on running economy and efficiency would be helpful. But really for the marathon distance, you're going to be want to working on some longer um, duration tempo workouts, some lactate threshold, some race pace. That's your more specific speed work that you're going to want to be doing versus if you're training for a 5k and you're really trying to train some higher end speed. So um, just throwing speed workouts in, you know, maybe that your friend is doing or that you found on the internet, not, not always um, the, the best idea. And uh, along those lines, you know, thinking about the specificity, thinking about your goals and, and setting your goals. And the two goals that we often get from our runners that we're talking to now, new and returning, um, are PRing. So that's, you know, a, a great goal. You know, you want to beat your previous times and BQ, but qualifying for Boston. So those are two popular goals, but especially now as we're getting back um, in into, into racing. Um, I think a great goal and one that we've heard from a lot of our runners is just to get back into racing and have a good, feel good at, at that race distance. And that's a great goal too, you know, just to come back and, um, and get, you know, kind of rip the bandaid off and get back into, into racing and help stay healthy and um, kind of get that base back. That's a, that's a perfectly fine goal as well. Can I, can I say hi to Buster? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to try to go get Buster sees a squirrel outside. So <laughs> I understand. Um, so yeah, with respect to the two goals that often our runners mention, which is to PR and to BQ, those are very common. But really, the best goal one can set for oneself is to meet yourself where you are right now. So our tip number four for returning to racing in full force is look at where you are right now and start from there. Don't try and think about the end goal as much as think about, okay, 
Well, I've done a really great job during this pandemic. I've done a lot of base building. I haven't done a lick of speed work, but I've got a nice base. So that's what you focus on. You focus on sprinkling in a little speed work because you haven't done any in months. Let's say you've done a lot of shorter distance stuff. You really enjoy going to the track, but you haven't really enjoyed doing base building, but you know you need to do that. Then now is the time to build in some more longer mileage. Um, let's say you've done no strength training because you just haven't been into the mood to do it. Now is the time to start incorporating a little bit of strength training, not too much all at once, but assess and look at where you are right now and don't beat yourself up if you're not in the best shape of your life. No one is. It's just, it's been a weird year. So celebrate what you have accomplished and be realistic and work from there. That's a great point. And, and we should mention too that, you know, we see some runners come back and think um, they think they've got to get all, they're all in right away. So they think I'm going to run every day. And, you know, that gets me into a good routine and good, you know, I, I don't want to give any, give up any day because I'm on a good roll. Same with strength, you know, doing strength every day or running every day. And while we appreciate that enthusiasm, um, it often leads quickly to, um, to overuse injuries. Um, so there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Um, and that's important to recognize too. And um, so uh, another, um, you know, another aspect of training that would be our fifth tip is is dialing your nutrition now. So that's, um, um, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, running miles and strength. Um, nutrition's another area where a lot of people jump in full fledged. They come back, they say, I'm just going to totally overhaul my diet and, you know, get back to healthy. Um, and, and it may or may not be what you need, your body needs right now. So dialing your nutrition, making small changes and working with a registered dietitian. If you have questions about your nutrition, like your overall nutrition, um, as you get back into running, because we haven't been racing and haven't maybe been running longer distances, starting to practice your, your nutrition fueling on the long run. So your body gets used to absorbing that nutrition and processing it and using it for, for longer distance. So we always tell our runners, once you're running over about an hour and a half continuously, start incorporating nutrition. Um, maybe you want to try something different. Maybe, you know, a lot of different options out there now. Maybe what you used before wasn't working or isn't working now. Um, this is the chance to experiment with that and dial it in both your race nutrition and um, just your general nutrition. Yeah, that's a great point, Lisa. When you talk about both your race nutrition and your general nutrition, sometimes we as runners only think about what we're eating around our running. But really, if you're someone that you've been, for example, um, eating more protein as of late, and but you haven't been running the same amount of mileage that you ordinarily would through, for marathon training, if you've increased your protein, but you haven't tested that increase in your protein with running longer distances and doing some tempo workouts, it's important to start that now so you can adjust if necessary. Um, our stomachs are definitely react differently depending on how much running we're doing and of course the pace. We've all noticed that when we're running faster, um, sometimes our body reacts differently to what we eat. So it's important to practice nutrition, not only while you're running, but also around your running and then just generally and doing that well before a race so you can tweak things if necessary and figure out what's going on. Uh, so the other thing is, is that, and this is our sixth tip. If you're sitting here thinking, I'm not sure if I need a coach, I, I can do this without a coach, but I might get a coach, but I'm going to try this on my own. My marathon's not until October. Uh, as coaches, we would just advise anyone thinking about getting a coach to really think about securing a coach now if you are looking at a three to four month training cycle. Because the first month or so with a coach when you're 
when you're getting to know your coach and working together, there's there's a little bit of trial and error, um, sort of trying to understand goals and, and working as a team. And when obtaining a coach just a couple of months before a goal race, it's really not as effective. So uh, we both really didn't know this before we started coaching, but after doing this for quite a while, we really recognized the value of being with a runner for the full training cycle. So if you're contemplating getting a coach, do your research, figure out what kind of coach you want, and at least reach out and start the conversation at least four months before your marathon so you can have that coach in place when you start the meat and potatoes of your training cycle. Yeah, and that coach can, you know, we've talked a lot about a lot of different factors, balancing running and strength and nutrition and um, speed and endurance and paces and efforts. And it can sound really overwhelming. And as coaches, that's what we help runners do is put it all together into a thoughtful and and um, very deliberate plan. So that's, um, you know, if people are listening and getting overwhelmed by all of the different factors involved, that's what a coach can do. And we would encourage runners to interview several coaches and find one that fits your philosophy, your personality. What do you need as a runner? Do you need somebody who's going to be very, you know, involved day to day and available for constant um, questions? Um, or are you somebody who's pretty independent and can take a plan and run with it on your own? Um, so really talking to talking to coaches, talking to other runners who've used coaches. Um, like you said, if, if, if you're thinking of getting a coach now is the time to start that process. So definitely um, moving on to our seventh tip. And this one I found really hard lately. And I think it's going to get harder as we get back to more normalcy. Um, but the other really important factor in success and in injury prevention is sleep and minimizing stress. Um, and those kind of go hand in hand, like we've talked about on our podcast, um, which we'll actually talk about today on our podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, we've talked about it before that getting, getting more sleep, um, is, is really critical to, to stress reduction and to recovery. So the next tip we have is one that we didn't realize as much until COVID. And that is all of the walking that we do day to day actually does count in terms of time on your feet. And what we mean by that is if your schedule has a six, seven mile run for the day, but you happen to be walking uh, a lot more than usual, that does count toward your mileage. So we have a runner, for example, who um, is, is recovering from a minor surgery and he started feeling a little bit of pain and he couldn't figure out why he was back to running, not a lot of mileage. And we figured out that it was because over the weekend, he had gone to New York City and he had walked a lot throughout New York City. And as a result, that impacted his running. And we've seen that quite a bit. So, you know, day-to-day -day walking is not a big deal. But if you happen to be hiking or walking an unusual amount, then definitely look at your running for that day or the next day and uh, make adjustments. Great. That's, you know, definitely, I think, like you said, and I think we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic when people were doing a lot of walking and um, they weren't realizing how much time they were getting on their feet. So that's a, a good tip. Um, our, our ninth tip is strength train and strength train meaningfully. Um, and it doesn't have to be an hour of strength training a day or even a half hour strength training a day. It can be 20 minutes, three times a week, runner specific strength. So that's core, which includes your glutes, your hips, um, uh, and, and single leg stability, 
um, really important. So, um, you know, finding a trainer that you can work with that can show you the proper way to do those exercises is really helpful, especially now that we're getting back to in-person stuff. So if you can find a local trainer to help you with that and incorporate it um, throughout your week, it does not have to be a huge commitment of time, um, but it is so important. And then our last tip would be listen to your body. And that is um, really important, especially as we ease back into things and, um, you know, your paces that you ran before may not feel right. Um, or any stress may be affecting you. So just that's always our rule of thumb is listen to your body. And we always tell our runners, we are not sticklers for pace, hitting certain paces other than your easy pace or your easy effort. Um, we're really more concerned with rate of perceived exertion and listening to your body. And if you get out there one day and the paces you're supposed to be hitting feel a lot harder, um, it's okay. You'll still have a successful workout if you hit the efforts properly. So listen to your body. If your body's telling you it needs an extra couple rest days, take those rest days and um, trust your instincts. We're all, as, as runners, we're all um, pretty tuned into our body. So that is our last and probably most important tip. Absolutely. So we would be remiss if we didn't mention that we are doing a group program. It's a virtual group program to train runners for the Boston Marathon. So if you are a runner and you are looking to run Boston in the fall in, on, in October 2021, because of the unusual uh, timing of the race, we thought that this would be a need this year, especially coming out of COVID and just kind of figuring out how to train for this unusually timed race. So it's our Boston Marathon program. We're, we're calling it uh, RFF to BOS. And the program is a group schedule. It's virtual. It's similar to our speed and strength program where runners will have a schedule. We won't be checking in regularly as we do with our virtual coaching, but we will be available for questions if necessary. And we'll be providing periodic speakers on Zoom. And that will also be available to our, co our individual coaching clients, um, as well as strength training workouts. So if you're someone that you just basically want a well thought out schedule to follow for Boston, but you don't feel that you need hands-on coaching, but you still want the benefit of some kind of structure, then um, definitely check out our program. Uh, more details can be found on our website, runfarthervaster.com, or you can email us at julianlisa at runfarthervaster.com to find out more information. So next up, we have a great guest. She actually was on our podcast for episode 61 last August. Her name is Dr. Heather Hausenblass. Uh, Dr. Hasselblast, who we call Heather, is back again. This time, uh, rather than talking about exercise addiction, which is what she talked about on the last episode, she's going to talk to us about the four S's. The four S's are sleep, sweat, stand, and step. There is not a fifth S, which would be sitting. That is not an S. And uh, those are basically the cornerstones of health. And Heather is a health researcher, and she's going to talk about what we can do to make sure we fit these in and why it is crucial to our health. Heather is an author, a researcher, and a leading health and wellness expert. She's the co-author of six books and has published over 100 scientific journal articles related to health, sport, and wellness. She's been recognized for her research and has been the recipient of several awards, including the Sports Science Award of International Olympic Committee for her research on social determinants on physical activity. She's an advocate for improving people's health, and she currently serves as a vice chair for the Mayor's Council on Fitness and Wellbeing for the city of Jacksonville, where she teaches as well 
at the University of Jacksonville, and she is also a member of the Humana Bold Gold Initiative Movement for Change. She's amazing, and that's why she's on our podcast for a second time. We learned so much for this conversation, and we promise you, you will as well. And uh, believe us, it, it's, it was a big wake-up call for us. So we hope that all of our listeners enjoy this conversation with Heather as much as we did. And Lisa, I hope you have a great week. Thanks. You too, Julie. Bye. Bye. Dr. Heather Hausenblass, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast again. Thank you so much for joining us a second time. So to remind our listeners of who you are, uh, could you share a little bit about your background and who you are today? Yeah, definitely. And thank you for having me back. I'm excited to, to be here. I love what you guys do. I am a health and, and wellness, I, I say expert and expert in nut and researcher. I teach at Jacksonville University. I'm a professor there and I teach within the area of kinesiology. So I teach exercise and health psychology classes, which focus on health behaviors, trying to get people to understand how they can be healthy through how much they move, their diet, you know, how they're, how they're sleeping and getting their stress levels down. But I also study the science behind this. I'm a very evidence-based person. So when I take a look even at movement and how much we need to move or how much we need to sleep or how, how does it make us feel? I go back to the research, say, okay, what does the research tell us? And I also design studies to studies to test it. And my focus has largely been on, on exercise. And I've looked at the whole continuum from people who don't exercise enough, which is most people, and how we can get them to, to move more to the other end of can people actually become addicted? to exercise and, and exercise too much. So that's really has been, been what I have focused on. And through the years, I've realized that people want to be healthy, and, but they struggle with how to do that oftentimes. And so I'm trying to make, make it easier and more digestible for them because good health is hard and I'm trying to make it easier for people on their path to health wellness. Well, you make it very easy for us because you just led us into your, our next question, which is, what are you doing as of late to make it easier on people to be healthy? I just recently with a colleague of mine through goodness, many discussions over many years uh, and knowing the research saying, what can we do to, to, to help people and make a larger, larger impact and touch a, a huge population? So what we've done is we've created a company, it's called Healthy Moves Journaling, where we take the science and put it into basically guided journals that are really simple and digestible for people to get them to become healthier. So we take what are the most recent guidelines for what people need to eat or how much they need to move and put it into a journal format where people will track what they're doing, know what they need to get to, what the goal is, and then they can see their progress, their progress over, over time. So we base it on all the science that is out that it, that, that's out there. We try to make it really easy for people and digestible so that they can become healthier and do it really from their own home. And it stemmed really from the, from the pandemic and how can we bring this into people's, into people's homes and make it easy and affordable for them. And you really bring together, not just, um, you know, as, as athletes, we think about movement and, you know, what's our workout for the day and have we accomplished that workout? And then we may come back and sit at our desks for the rest of the day and, and not do anything else. But we were really proud of ourselves because we think, you know, we got in, we got on our workout, but you, you address more than just 
that workout part or the sweating part of it. So tell us a little bit more about what, you know, what guidelines are you pulling and where, what aspects are we looking at aside from just the workouts that we're getting in during the day? This is, a, this is a really good question. And the science is always evolving and it's always changing as we as we learn more. And when I first started in the field, it, it, it was fascinating. And it's even more fascinating now as you have an explosion of research and thousands of studies now showing that exercising and moving is one of the best things that you can do for your, do for your health. And that's what I would do. I felt if I get in my 30 minute run, then, then I'm good for the day. And, and that's, that's it. I've hit, I've hit my goal, but over the last about 15 years, researchers have began to, to switch their thinking and say, okay, yes, exercise and the sweating aspect is great. We should be doing that about 30 minutes a day, but our whole day counts towards our health and how much we're actually moving. So the science has shown that we spend way too much sitting now and sitting has many, many negative health effects. So not only should you be sweating or exercising almost every day, but you should also be standing, standing more during, during the day. And one of the big wake ups for me was some science showing that individuals who let's say go to the gym and do their 30 minutes or 45 minutes, you know, at the gym or their CrossFit, which is great for their health. But if they spend the rest of their day, pretty much sitting, that has huge negative health effects. And I like to call those people the active couch potatoes. So what we're trying to do through this journal is to bring awareness that yes, you should be moving and you know, the, the sweating portion about 30 minutes a day, but you also need to be aware of how much you're sitting during the day. And the guidelines, which are called the 24-hour movement guidelines, which have, which have come out in certain, certain countries, which I think are brilliant, showing that all 24 hours matter towards our health and how we move. That yes, we need to be exercising, but we also need to be standing more during the day. And when I say standing more during the day, you should be limiting how much you sit during the day to eight hours or less. And that may say, you may say, oh my gosh, that's so easy to do. I don't sit eight hours a day. Well, most people actually do sit eight plus hours a day and they accumulate that, right? You may do, you know, an hour meeting here, two hours driving, but all of that adds up. So what we're trying to do is bring awareness to people and say, okay, try to stand more during the day, because when you stand more, you're going to have health, health benefits. Like for example, what I do, I have a standing desk. Um, oftentimes when I'm having a meeting, I'll make it a walking meeting where I have shoes in my office and, and people know if they're going to be meeting with me, we're probably going to go outside and we're probably going to go for, go for a walk. Um, and that's just light, like physical, like physical activity. So there's things that people can do to, you know, kind of change how they think about the whole 24 hours of movement. And a big part of movement, believe it or not, is sleep, because sleep is a movement. We're not doing much, right? But it, it's, it's an important part of our whole 24 hours. And for people to understand that if they don't get enough sleep, an adult should be getting somewhere between seven to nine hours of sleep a night. If you don't get enough sleep and it's not good quality, the next day, you're not going to um, move enough. You probably won't have the energy to go to, to exercise. You'll probably be in a worse mood. You'll be less productive. So what we did with these guidelines is we condensed them, simplified them, put them into a guided journal where each day people can very quickly look at it and they fill out how much they've sweat or exercised, how, how they slept, how many hours, what was the quality of that sleep, how much they were sitting and standing and how much light activity they did. And then they can take a look at, okay, did I meet the guidelines today? How did I do? How are these all, how are these all related? 
And they are, because if you think about it, we know that one of the best things that people can do for their sleep is to exercise during the day. And so if you don't exercise that day, then it's going to affect your sleep, your sleep at night. So by integrating and showing the whole 24 hours matters, and it's not just that 30 minutes or 45 minutes that you spend, let's say running or sweating, but everything is related to create that awareness. And that's what we wanted to do within this, you know, within this journal. It's a brilliant concept. Um, just curious, are you thinking also of doing some sort of app for those who are maybe not as much into journaling and like the concept, but don't picture themselves using pen and paper for this? Yes, exactly. So we are going to, you know, put it into, you know, into an app form as well for, for people to hit different modalities, because not everybody, a lot of people do like to have, you know, the hard copy, the paper and pencil, but it's not for, not for everybody. And we're also going to branch off and develop these journals for different populations. So for kids and, and teenagers, there are specific guidelines for, for our kids and for our teens they should be moving and sweating about 60 minutes every day. And most of them, unfortunately, don't meet that. They spend a lot of time sitting typically in front of a screen. So it's also tracking, okay, you should be um, sitting less than eight hours a day. You should have no more than two hours of what we call recreational screen time. Because typically when people are in front of a screen, kids included, you're being sedentary. And then taking a look also at the at their sleep and how much they need to be they need to be sleeping as well. So we're going to branch off. We're going to create these journals also for kids, for for older adults that have different different twenty four hour guidelines. Pregnant women, postpartum women, because there are specific guidelines for all of these what we call these special populations to create awareness for how much we need to be moving within a twenty four hour period. Heather, you talked about the difference between different populations, but what about men versus women? Any difference that you see there just in terms of like our lifestyles or the science, you know, the, the science backgrounds, like what, 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 is there a difference between men and women? Well, yeah, <laughs> yes, there are, there are differences, but it, you know, it's an interesting question because historically from a research standpoint, women were left out. Women were not studied and it's really not until recently that major um, governing bodies for research, like the National Institutes of Health have mandated that you need to include women in a research study. And if you're not, you need to provide very strong ration, you know, rationalization for, for why. But when we take a look at the, the whole movement guidelines, they're, they're, this, they're, they're the same for, for men and women, except we're now seeing specific ones coming out for pregnant and postpartum women because of, you know, that's a very unique and challenging time within within a woman's, woman's life. So typically when I'm talking about these guidelines it's based on the research that is grouped together, men, men and women. We do know that exercise and moving is one of the best things that you can do for your health, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, no matter what your, what your age is. But we do know that there are differences, right? That, that, do, that do come out, whether it's the, the mood effects um, of exercise or the stress reducing effects, or just the barriers to exercise, because women will report different barriers or different difficulties that they encounter to try to exercise during the day than you see with than you see with men. Um, so there's challenges certainly that 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 do occur that we need to be aware of. But when we created this, we were creating it in general based on the guidelines, which were for both men and women. But we are going to branch off and do some ones that are specific 
to, to what we call those special populations, in particular pregnant and postpartum women. Because I know, for example, I have three boys and they're a little bit older now. Our youngest is, um, is 12, but when they were really young, it was really hard for me to, to exercise. I began to get up at five in the morning so that I could exercise before they were up because I felt once they were up, that was it, it was game over. It wasn't going to, to, um, to happen. I also bought you know the baby jogger and, and had that. And then when I had two little ones that were only 20 months apart, then I bought the twinner one and was push, you know, pushing both of them. But not everybody has access to that or understands, you know, what do I need to be doing to, to be healthy? And a lot of us are goal oriented and like to set those goals and reach them. So putting this into practice, you know, most of, if not all of our listeners are already have the sweating part of, of the four S's you mentioned, standing, stepping, sweating, and sleeping. But it's hard to put into practice, especially the stepping and even the standing for some, because our daily routines often feel very prohibitive. For example, you mentioned uh, kids. Well, this year, many kids have, most kids have been online all year. And so it's been harder for them to be able to figure out how to move more or avoid the screens when they're on screens a lot. So we'll just forget about this year moving forward and say, how, how about adults? You know, kids sort of have built-in steps. Uh, they're moving around more in school, for example. Um, they're ideally playing some sort of sport or doing some type of physical activity, whatever that looks like. But adults work in desk jobs notoriously or offices. And aside from some commuting time, what are some practical steps no pun intended, that adults can take to fit in more stepping when they have, by nature, a sedentary job? Yeah, great question. And I like to look at almost the multitasking where you can get a standing desk. If you can't afford one, you can build one really easily. Put some boxes on your, you know, on your, on your desk is one thing. And that way you're standing more during the day or even to get like, for example, a balance ball as opposed to sitting in a chair because that will give you a little bit of movement and a little bit of, little bit of fidgeting. Now with like, you know, the ear pods and things that we have, it's really easy when you're having a conversation with somebody, you can take your phone with you and go for a walk. And I will often do that when I'm on a meeting now, I'm on my phone, but I'm outside and, and I'm walking when I'm talking to the person. So I try to almost um, double dip in a sense when I'm doing these, um, doing these types of things. For, this was a couple of years ago, I did a study at Jacksonville University with students and we ended up purchasing and they were literally cardboard standing desks that cost $20 that you just put on top of your desk, pop them open. So we had students um, use them over the course of the semester. And then we had a control group that did not use them. And what we found at the end of the semester, the students during lecture, because typically when you're in lecture and you're listening to your professor, you're sitting, but now they were standing. And what we found, we compared these two groups, the group of students that use the standing desk versus the ones that were sitting the students that use a standing desk ended up being more productive and having more energy during the semester and their overall GPA in the course was actually higher. So, um, you know, and we, you know, we like to use these catchy terms, you know, we would say, oh, well, standing desks made them smarter. No, that wasn't the case, but you did, you did see, you did see a change. So I think by using this guided journal, when you're taking what we call the four S's of, um, of our movement, you know, how much you're sweating, how much you're stepping, how much you're standing and how much you're sleeping. A big aspect of it is to create awareness. And once people are aware 
and they can see, oh my gosh, over this course of this 24 hours, I'm only, I'm only sleeping five hours and I'm only, you know, exercising for only 15 minutes, let's say three times a week. And I'm spending most of my day sitting. It gives them that snapshot and then that ability to say, okay, what can I do then to, to change that? And on our website, we have a lot of information about how you can go about to, to, to change your behaviors, to, to, to move more and to become healthier. You can notice both well, Julie and I are now moving our computers around so we can stand up. During this I'm, I just was going to say, I'm, I'm standing. Up, up, up because I want to stand up during this call too. You just inspired me to stand yeah, up, Heather. I was just doing the same thing, Julie, going, how can I move this laptop up so I can stand up? Yeah. But I think it's a great, uh, um, you know, it is a great reminder and it's so easy just to default to what you're used to and, you know, your routine, which is maybe sitting at a desk and, and not, like you said, think a little bit out of the box of like, I have a call to take. Well, I can take that outside and, and take it for a walk or just stand up and walk around the house yeah. or I can move my laptop up a little bit and, and stand up rather than, um, yeah. rather than sit for this. And, and it's making me think already like, oh, why don't I put my laptop on the counter in the kitchen instead and stand versus, you know, sitting, sitting at my desk. So I think it's a, the journal itself is a great way to hold on. <laughs> I'm dropping my camera, but um, the journal itself is just a great reminder. It's a, it's a way to make us um, cognizant and really just um, take stock and, and think, rethink the way we normally do things. So, yeah. And, you know, so get the point across to people that there's many ways to be healthy and there's many ways to move and that even the simple act of standing or even fidgeting a little bit, has some health effects. And that's important, I feel, for people to know and for them to be aware of. And we'll get the question asked oftentimes of, well, what's what's prolonged sitting? And how long do I sit before it becomes bad for my health? And what, from a research standpoint, we tend to classify as prolonged sitting is, if you've been sitting for an hour straight, that's too long and you need to stand up. And it's as simple as just standing up for a couple of minutes, maybe just taking a walk, you know, around, around your house. So maybe you're gonna go upstairs and grab something or just make a, a walk around the hall where you work for a couple of minutes and then go and sit back down again. And that's honestly, it's almost a reset for your body. So what I encourage some people to do, if they've got those jobs, and this happens to me, you get in the zone, you're in front of your computer and you're working on something. And then you look down at your watch and two, three hours have, have passed. So what I say to people is, is set a timer. For an hour, your timer will go off in that hour mark. That's kind of the, your time for you to stand so you don't hit into this prolonged sitting and just stand for a couple of minutes. You don't need to change your clothes. You don't need to go to the gym. You're not going to sweat, but there is actually going to be significant health effects from doing that, doing that simple act over time. Are you going to notice it immediately? No, these are tends to be more of these longer term things that take a long time to a long time to to see a significant health effect but there are going to be health effects and you are going to feel feel better heather do you find that um, as people journal it helps them get into the habit um you know do like after a certain point do people not need to journal anymore because they've now established a habit is that sort of the goal or is this something that you see as like long term you know, it, it can go either way. And we strategically set up the journal to be 60 days long for people to track for 60 days. And the reason why, and we just didn't pull out 60 days out of a, out of a hat and say, oh, this sounds like a good number. It's actually based on the science about how long it change, it takes people to, to change their behavior and make it and make it a habit. And on average, it takes people 66 days 
to change a behavior and make it happen. Now there's huge variability because some people can get it going right away within only a couple of weeks. Some people take longer, but what we did is we chose the average. So that's why it's 60 days. So for some people that will be enough and they are good to go and they um, don't need to keep, keep with the journal. For some people, they like that accountability and that they will want to keep journaling and then they can go and for example, purchase another one or download some of the pages pages for free and do it and do it that way. So from a health standpoint, it's a very inexpensive investment for, for people to understand what they're doing and to create awareness. Because that's really the first step because a lot of people aren't aware of how much they're sleeping and how much they're actually standing versus sitting during the day. And that's really the first step because if you don't realize that you're doing something too much or too little, then you have nothing that you think you need to change. I think this is a great wake up call because, you know, we've read a lot of articles over the last several years about the dangers of being sedentary. And I, I think many runners, myself included, look at those articles like that's that's a different population than me because I'm a runner. But you really are pointing out that as much as we spend sweating as runners and a lot of our listeners aren't just sweating for 30 minutes, they're sweating sometimes for two, three hours, depending on what they're training for. And that adds up to many hours a week. But to your earlier point, if you are sedentary for a large portion of the day otherwise, and that's negating all the benefits from that. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about that and then sort of talk about, because people love data, what are some of the longer term improvements one can see from just getting up more during the day at every hour, as you mentioned? Yeah, there have been some fascinating studies even showing weight loss effects from individuals who, who are overweight who've been enrolled into an intervention and every hour they just get up and they stand for, for a couple of minutes. Are they losing weight immediately? No, but over the course of a year, these individuals have lost like upwards of 10 pounds. That's a significant amount of weight by doing something that is so really so simple. So not only are you going to see, you know, ultimately potentially weight loss effects, but also there's improvements in the psychological aspects from, from mood where people will report that they're in a better mood. They feel a little bit more, more productive, um, less fatigued so that they're gonna be able to get more done. Also, you see this cognitive component coming out of the ability to focus more. And if you're focusing more, then you're going to get, you're going to get more stuff done. And then from a physiological standpoint, there are a lot of um, improvements physiologically. Are they dramatic? No, but you do see these small improvements that over time make, um, make up a huge, huge difference in individuals overall, overall health. So that's why now you see this um, change in our exercise guidelines, where they used to be exercise guidelines, right? And that's what we needed to do. But now the science is showing it's more than just the exercise that makes us healthy. It's also our quality of our sleep and how much we're sleeping and how much we're standing during the day. And that light activity that we tend to not spend a lot of time thinking about also has health benefits from just taking the stairs, um, as opposed to, you know, the elevator or, um, or trying to do that, for example, multiple times a day, or I even think about myself, how many times, like I'm walking around picking up clothes from my kids. That's still, you know, it's a work in progress after they have a shower, they seem to have a difficult time, you know, picking up that towel. But for me going around and doing that little bit of tidying up, 
that all that we all moms seem to seem to do that's physical activity the bending down right and the and the standing the standing up that those little movements over the course of the day can have a huge huge impact i'm just laughing because really that's probably not the best thing for our mental health <laughs> picking well, up after our kids after asking them like a hundred times could you pick your towel up after you take your shower but it makes so me feel better just... about it, right, Julie? Like now I feel like, oh, well, at least I'm getting, you know, like my kids had always promised to walk the dog and who's the one oh. who only walks the dog. But now I feel better. Like, you know, okay, they slacked, but I get the benefit. So, Well, that, that, that's a good way of looking at it. I, I feel sometimes I need to pick my battles because I have three boys and it got to the point where, yeah, my blood pressure would be shot from asking them. I would feel 5 million times to pick up their towel. I'm thinking, I don't know how difficult this is. You come out of the shower and the hook's right there. Why, why can't we do this? So now exactly. I've kind of accepted, I've kind of accepted this one thing with my youngest child. I feel like there's still hope with him. So he actually has a chore chart. And one of those is ridiculous. One of the things on the chore chart is for him to hang up his towel. And that's like, I'm like, Oh, that's a, what an accomplishment. We have that um, here too. Shared for, you know, unity here for, uh, we've got the same, the same issues with, with teenage kids. Um, but you, you brought up, you know, mental health and we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, the, the stress of raising kids and the stress of being a parent and everyone has kind of their stressors in life. I mean, that's an S that we don't, you don't incorporate into the journal, which I presume it would be because you really can't quantify that. Um, but talk a little bit about how stress plays into all of this and the interplay with, with our movement and our sleep. And, um, you know, when stress is impacting that, how that can affect our mental health. Typically, and, and stress, you know, and anxiety is is an interesting one and oftentimes people will, will state you know when they are stressed and when they're anxious one of the first things that goes is their exercise because typically when someone is stressed and anxious they have other things going on and that tends to take their focus away from from moving more but the science is really clear that exercise is one of the best things that you can do for your stress level after people exercise, they continually will report that they experience less stress and they're, and they're less anxious. So it's the point, and I often say to people, think about how you're going to feel after you exercise. You're going to be less anxious, you're gonna be less stressed, and you're going to be more productive. You're gonna be better able to handle whatever that, whatever that stress is. So by having something like this guided journal, it makes people aware and it makes them realize I have to put this into my day. I have to make this a top priority. And that's the way I look at it for myself and also for other people when I'm talking to them or doing, doing a study with them where we want to get them to move more is that simple act of saying, you've got to put this into your day. You have to pencil it in because this is so important for your, for your, overall, for your overall health. And the kind of the psychological aspects uh, of movement have lagged behind from a research standpoint from the physiological aspects. We know that when people exercise, they're going to live longer, less likely to have cancer, less likely to be overweight, less likely to have a heart attack, and the list goes on and on and on. And it's really within about the last 20 years that now we've looked, taken a look at the psychological aspects. And we know that when people move, they're less anxious, they're less stressed, they're in a better mood, they're less depressed, they are going to be they're going to be more happy. So there are all of these um, mood almost enhancing effects that go along with it and really say that yes, exercise is medicine. It's one of the best things that we can do for do for our health. Yeah, that's a great reminder. And it, you know, given that it's Mental Health Awareness Month, we certainly wanted to bring that up. And again, we know that 
most, if not all of our listeners get the mental health benefits of exercise, but for you to provide some concrete information and evidence today about the importance of the other factors, we talk a lot on our podcast about sleep and the importance of sleep, but you know, we don't talk as much about stepping and standing. And frankly, we, we know inherently, of course, that's good for us. But this year in particular, I think everyone has been trying so hard to just do everything they can to hold it together. You know, and so when you fit in your exercise, you kind of check that box and say, all right, I've got that. I'm really proud of myself. I've stayed consistent. But then when you look back at the big picture and you think, but if I'm sitting the rest of the day and negating this, then how you know, because I'm so tired from getting up early enough to fit my exercise in the rest of the day, I just can't move as much. I think this is a great reminder that if you have to prioritize something, sometimes, if not always, it's better to prioritize sleep. And if that means you're not able to exercise quite as long, you'll gain benefits throughout the day as a result because you'll be less tired and therefore more inclined to move and get the steps in the standing in. That's an excellent point. When we think about sleep, unfortunately, we've often thought of it as just this thing that we have to do. And if we need to give up something, we're going to give up a little bit of our sleep. And the science is so clear that we need our sleep. We need good quality sleep. It's one of the best things we, that we can do for our health. And that's why we include it within these 24-hour movement guidelines. I know myself and my kids were really young. And that was one of the things that I gave up because I didn't have a lot of time. And it was interesting during that period, I felt like I was getting sick a lot more and didn't have the energy during the, during the day. And a good tip for people to know, um, am I getting enough sleep or not? I asked them, do you, are you waking up with an alarm? Because if you're waking up with an alarm, that's telling you that you didn't get enough sleep. If you're waking up naturally on your own, then that's your body waking you, waking you up. So for people to kind of reflect and say, okay, um, am I using an alarm to get up is, is key. And if you are, you're not getting enough sleep. And I tell people one of the best things you can do for your overall sleep is to have a consistent bedtime and a consistent wake time. And even on the weekends to try to keep it consistent. And that's usually where people get throw, thrown off because believe it or not, we're creatures of habit. We have a circadian rhythm, our body, you know, um, resets every every day so to try to keep that time going to bed and that wake time consistent is really important for overall for overall health that's why you see individuals who are shift workers for example or if people do a lot of travel and they're traveling to different time zones getting into those different time zones are so hard because your body has to reset and you're not going to bed and waking up at the at the same time um so that's really really important for people to take a look at their whole 24 hours and, and what they're doing for their overall movement health. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's where your journal comes in particularly handy is because we don't, I know I partic- I, I don't look, I, I can't, can't get the big picture because we're rushing through life and we're not keeping track of how, what, how, you know, how much did I sleep last night? How much did I sleep last week? What did I do for movement today? How much did I stand? And so to have it all in front of you, um, I think gives you a good picture of where you may need to focus a little more effort or energies or find creative solutions to fitting in more, getting getting your required, you know, the guidelines and and, and really optimizing that. So um, that's, you know, on the one hand that helps 
see the big picture, but it also, like you said, too, keeps you accountable. Like if you, if you've got to do it and you make it a priority, you know, I've got to write that down in my journal, if I'm going to see a blank, blank page. So, um, so tell our listeners where they can find the journal, how they can get their hands on it, what um, online resources there are, if there are any, um, you know, apps or anything coming down the pike, how they can, how they can take advantage of this. Yes. It's available now on Amazon and it is $6 and 99 cents. We kept the price really low because to, to us, what's, what's more important that people are using it and that there's not going to be that barrier to cost. So you can go to Amazon, find it on Amazon. You can also go to the website, Healthy Moves Journaling, and it's available there with a lot of information regarding, you know, the science behind why we need these 24-hour movement guidelines and some extra extra things to help people along the way. And we're in the process, yes, of creating that app and getting it into that digital format for people who don't like to do the old fashioned paper paper and pencil way. But we wanted to come up first with, with it in a book format so that people can reflect and look back and see, the, see their progress really easily over, over time. Well, Heather, it's, it's really a great idea. You've taken a relatively easy concept and made it even easier for people to follow. And uh, I think it's a great wake up call. And especially for all of us who are in the population of active adults where we think we have it all covered, we really don't. So this is a great reminder and, and an easy way for all of us to incorporate something really pleasant, more movement and standing a little more. It's not asking a lot and sleeping a little more. It's, it's all good stuff. It doesn't require equipment or any money, it just requires uh, being a little bit more organized and thoughtful about how we live our lives. So thank you so much for coming on today and sharing more of your expertise. We're, we feel so fortunate to have found you and to have you as a resource. And uh, you're one of our few guests who's come on more than once. And there's a good reason you really are just have so much wisdom and so much expertise. And we're, we're really glad we've had the opportunity to speak with you again. So thank you so much, Heather. Thank you guys. Really appreciate it and love what you guys do. We're going to be standing thank you. a lot more when we're doing our work now. So thanks to you. <laughs> thanks, Heather. It was great to see you and great to talk to you. And as always, thanks for all your really sound and practical advice. Thank you, guys. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others. And please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.